Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Godard Abel. Godard is the CEO of G2, which is like Yelp for software. Uh, G2 recently achieved unicorn status, which congratulations. Godard, welcome to World of DAS. Yeah, great to be here with you, Arn. All right, now I, I want to dive into a bunch of things about G2 and a bunch of things about data. But first, I know that you have like a real interest in like growing leaders. Mm -hmm. um, and you're, you're kind of like a big proponent of hiring, I'd say, more junior talent and then growing them to be more senior contributors. Um, how, how do you like identify that talent? Let's say someone's 22 to 24 years old. Um, how, how do you like know the right type of person to, to hire then? Well, I do think leaders are born and you love hiring many young people. And then I find, you know, if you hire, let's say, a big class of BDRs, you hire eight BDRs you'll just see that one of them is a natural leader. And I think usually you see that both by their work ethic. You know, they grind every day. They're the kind of people that are looking to get better. And then you can also naturally see who their peers turn to for advice. And so I think what I love to do is we hire a lot of young talent. And ideally, we're hiring smart, motivated people. And then you identify the leaders as they emerge. Got it. Okay. So while, during the interview process, you don't necessarily know there's a class of 10. You don't, you don't necessarily have a sense that, okay, this Jane is going to be the leader or something. And then later Jane, you'll see like people start to turn to Jane and then you, then you say, okay, well, we're going to identify her and, and kind of give her more support or something. Yes. And I think one great example of that would be Frances Arville. She's now running our sales team for G2 in London. And she started with us, I think, as a BDR in Chicago, like three or four years ago. And frankly, if you met her and she says about herself, she's actually kind of quiet, unassuming. And so I would have never known day one that she'd be an amazing leader. But then one or two years in, you could just see she would you know, crush her numbers, her work ethic, her desire to learn. And you see all her peers turning to her for advice. And so then we promoted her once to, I think, be a BDR leader. And then we promoted her again. And then we had opportunity. We're growing our business in Europe. And we sent her over there. And she'd really never been a sales leader, but we knew she was a great leader. And, you know, now she's really done an amazing job growing our business in Europe. And so that's just one great example. I'm interested in your statement. We said leaders are born, um, which essentially kind of means like leaders aren't made. That's definitely kind of a, like an interesting uh, belief. Like, why do you believe that in leaders are born? Maybe born's the right wrong term, but certainly I think by the time they show up at your company, yep, and it may be things they were born with, it may be skills they developed or things they learned from their parents. But I do think by the time they show up at your company, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, you can usually identify the leaders more so than you can teach somebody to be a leader. But I would say once you identify them, then we do invest a lot in making them great leaders. Because I think most people don't necessarily know how to manage. They might have intrinsic leadership skills. They don't know how to manage. They don't really know how to inspire. They don't know how to be systemic. So we invest a lot in what we call conscious leadership. And I'm still working on myself as a leader. I work with a conscious leadership coach. Now I've made that available to my own senior team. And we're developing a whole program now. Our new chief people officer, she actually was a conscious leadership coach herself before. And now we're developing a whole programs. So once we identify those people like Francis that have great leadership potential, then we really teach them and develop them to make them better and better leaders. 
Is there something that you think the market undervalues when they're looking for talent that maybe G2 values that maybe other people undervalue? I would say yes. I mean, aptitude and motivation. And I think on the flip side, it might be overvalued. And I have degrees from MIT and Stanford, but I would say those tend to be overvalued. You know, what I love, what we found at prior companies, you know, we, for example, we hire a lot of people in Chicago and I love finding, you know, IIT, Illinois Institute of Technology grads that are just as smart as MIT grads. And I find oftentimes they'll be hungrier because they don't get all the opportunities you get if you went to MIT or Stanford and they really feel like they have something to prove. And during the interview process, how do you understand someone's motivation level? Yeah, and I think, again, it's hard to really understand your interview process. So I do love this idea. If you hire big classes of young people, it will identify after they start. Um, I think, obviously, with more senior people, you can see it in their track record and in their prior performance. But I think with junior people, it's more you see it after they start. Obviously, we do things like coding tests and you know you try to get at it. But I find usually, and you can always tell within a month, I'm sure it's the same for you, Orrin. I wish I could figure it out during the interview, you know, but but I think it emerges right away. And then those are the people that become your, your 10X engineers. And I think the one thing we do also do with junior people, we do tests for aptitude. So you have like an ISO IQ test or what? what is? Uh, when it's, like a, it's more like an SAT or an ACT. We call it a CCAT. And it's a fully normed test. So it's also you know, proven to not be biased. It's actually a little bit like what they do in the NFL draft with the Wonderlick. Yep. The military has something similar, right? Yeah. And it's just kind of a, to try to measure your ability to learn quickly. And especially most of our jobs are with data and with numbers. And I think especially for those kinds of jobs, if you have really high aptitude, you'll learn faster. Is it like a time test, like an online time test? Or uh, yes. Like it's 15 minutes. So it's quick. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that's and it's also a test of speed. And obviously the more questions you can answer in that time accurately. And most people, I think 50 total, nobody almost, I don't think anybody ever gets 50. Um, but, you know, but the idea is just to see how, you know, how quickly can somebody learn. And I think that's an advantage, I think, to hire people that frankly haven't gone to great schools because obviously great schools tend to do the same. You know, they use the ACT, SAT, other things like that, their grades to really test for similar characteristics. I think oftentimes we'll hire people even that didn't go to college. You know, like one of our best sales reps didn't even go to college. And frankly, I would have never hired, had the confidence to hire him, but we saw, wow, he has super high aptitude. We sensed he was super motivated. And frankly, he became, you know, one of our very best reps. And do you put the aptitude tests like at the very top of the, uh, of the interview process or is it like midway through the interview process? Like when do you, when do you put that filter in? Um, usually at the top of the process, especially again, for junior people, you know, where you don't have a lot of other attributes, obviously we don't do that for like a senior manager or senior, yeah. lead, but, but for the volume of hiring, yes. Let's dive into G2 itself. Uh, and, and just as a disclaimer, I'm super biased. I love G2. I think it's a great, uh, firm. I'm actually, I'm an investor as you know, but, but I am part of the reason I invested is because I'm such a big fan of the, of the company. Um, now, you know, before G2, we, we kind of relied on like these companies like Gartner for these B2B software reviews. And they weren't always like particularly helpful because they're kind of like limited and it was expensive and it was like biased. Now this is like, there's this explosion of software companies to understand. Um, so it, it kind of seems like you, you, you kind of got in there at the perfect time to create G2. I think you mentioned like initially VCs weren't as interested 
in in this? Like, why did they not see what you saw? Yeah, I think the VCs, frankly, a lot of them are just looking for another SaaS company. And I've built SaaS companies, you know, your ACV, your ARR, your TAM, they understand it. And frankly, this was different. I remember we started the company in 2012. And that was a year Mark Andreessen said software's eating the world. And luckily for all of us, he was right. So that was kind of our, our sector bet. We're like, hey, software's only gonna get much bigger. And we did think, you know, Gartner, the status quo, we were very frustrated by. I'd been a software entrepreneur. And I remember my first company took us nine years to get in Gartner Report. Took us 12 years to become the leader. And frankly, we just thought that couldn't keep up with the pace of innovation in the modern world. Like no entrepreneur wants to wait nine years. And also, frankly, new technologies were emerging so quickly that the traditional analysts couldn't keep up with primary research. And so we thought a crowdsourced model would serve our industry much better. And we could give real-time insights on all the apps. And now on G2, you know, there's over 100,000 different SaaS apps and you know, well over a million and a half reviews now. And so we have all these insights, but they're all in real time. And so we can really tell the software buyer what's trending, what's emerging, what the real users think, and give them a transparent view to help them find the best apps in real time. And that was really the vision we were aiming to bring to life when we started. As a CEO, it kind of always irked me that these kind of older school research firms were, were kind of blatantly pay to play. Like they, they kind of almost didn't even try to hide that conflict. Like how do you ensure GQ reviews are more truthful and, and how do you avoid that kind of conflict of interest? Right. And I think that the big difference is all our ratings are based on data. They're all algorithmic. And so it's not our team's opinion. And you can be number one on G2 and not ever pay us a penny. One example is Slack. And for years, Slack is number one on G2 overall. And obviously, we tried to sell them our premium marketing solutions. We never could because they're like, hey, we're growing just fine without you. But they were always number one on G2 because they have like 50,000 reviews. Most people love Slack. And so you know, our algorithm says, hey, they have the most reviews, the happiest reviews, the most recent reviews. So they're number one. And so I think that that makes it really easy. And you know, on G2 today, I mentioned there's over 100,000 apps, only 2,500 of them are paid. And so that's one of my pitches to entrepreneur. I've always been an entrepreneur, right? You don't have to spend money with us. You don't have to pitch us. What I think about your app doesn't matter at all. Um, you know, it's really just about your customers. And obviously, if you can encourage your customers to share their voice, share their opinion, then you do better on G2. But what we think doesn't matter. Now, the old name was G2 Crowd. Like, what was the genesis of that name? Yeah. And G2 is a term for military intelligence. So the general's intelligence staff in the U.S. military is called the G2. And so it's a colloquial expression also in the military. Hey, give me the G2 on that. Give me the quick insight what's really happening in the battlefield. So that's the, the G2 part of the name. And then the crowd, you know, that was a juxtaposition to Gartner. We didn't want one wonky analyst. One of the crowd of millions, thousands of users that were really using the software. Because we also thought it was wrong with the analyst model. It's a bit like a restaurant critic that couldn't eat the food. Because the reality is business software, most analysts, they're not the business persona. Right. They don't use the product itself. Right. Yeah. They're standing outside the restaurant asking the person, hey, how was your meal? You know, which is useful, but obviously much more useful. Why not ask the person that ate the food? Imagine if some movie critic couldn't actually see the movie or something exactly. like that. Yeah, it'd be kind of an odd. I think that's a re that's actually a really good point. Not that long ago, you, you used to be g2crowd.com. Now you're g2.com, which is like this amazing two-digit domain name. So I have to ask, and you, you can plead the fifth, um, but like, how, how did you get that name? And did, did it cost you like gazillion dollars or how did you, how did you, how did that happen? Yeah. And I think we wanted a shorter name because we want to build more of a consumer brand. 
And because we want software buyers around the world when they think of software just to go to g2g2.com. And like my dad said, he was like, G2 crowd, it was just a lot to say and harder to remember. Uh, but we didn't do it till after our Series C, because frankly, we had to spend almost a million dollars on it. And uh, But that was a big commitment then. And our Series C investor, Jules Moss from IVP, agreed, hey, let's really build a big brand. And so that, you know, ideally, people don't even go to Google anymore. Our dream is they just come to G2.com whenever they need software to make their business better. And, uh, and I think we're now, you know, hopefully on our way to establishing that brand. I know that you've, you've been a big student of marketplaces, like jumpstarting a marketplace can be really, really hard. I assume that getting reviews was the most important thing in jumpstarting the marketplace. But how, how do you think about that when, as, as the marketplace moves? Yeah. And, you know, starting our G2 marketplace, it was all about reviews. And I remember at the beginning, we read a lot about Yelp and, you know, because Yelp had started, I think, in 2004. And was interesting. And their founder, Jeremy's done a lot of great blogs. Luckily, he shared his knowledge. But I think he talked about that was the same challenge Yelp had at the beginning. And they wanted to disrupt the restaurant critic. They wanted to disrupt the Zagat's Guide, which you might remember. You know, because I remember the Zagat's Guide when, like, I was working in the 90s. I was like the holiday gift of choice. But it was a nice published restaurant guide. You know, but the problem was sometimes you'd show up at the restaurant and it was closed. Uh, you know, because they only published the book every year or two. And, uh, and so I think that's also what Jeremy and Yelp said, hey, let's do it in real time. But their problem was also, how do you get people to write reviews? And what you realize is most people never write reviews. You know, like we all love reviews. I know I do. And frankly, I have to admit, before I started G2, I never wrote reviews. I'd always read them on Amazon to help me buy things. I'd read them on Yelp, but I'd never write them. And I think also what Yelp discovered, there's a certain persona that loves writing reviews. That's kind of the wannabe restaurant critic. And I think they found that in San Francisco was their first city, but they went city by city. First, they nailed it in San Francisco. Initially, they also had a really hard time. They kind of would ask their friends, pay people to write reviews. Then they also suddenly discovered there was this tribe of people, you know, not called the Yelp elite, that just love writing reviews. But, but in Yelp's case, I mean, you know, someone who like goes out to restaurants, like that type of persona might be going out to multiple restaurants per week. They're trying out lots of new things. There's not that many people who are like really using more than 20 different software systems per year or something. So there, there's some sort of limit to the number of reviews that a super reviewer could write, right, on, on G2? Yeah, I would say yeah, usually on G2, it's more like maybe five to 10. You now, if you're a marketer, and most marketers don't have pretty big MarTech stacks, you know, but you probably know like five apps really well that you use every day. But we do find also in business software, there are some marketers that want to share their knowledge, you know, both intrinsically, or let's say we also saw this with like Salesforce admins. A lot of people like, you know, they might be trapped inside a manufacturing company. And frankly, none of their fellow employees at the manufacturer care anything about CRM software, or marketing software. But then, you know, G2 is the kind of place where a lot of they can share, they can be recognized for their knowledge, they can be recognized for their expertise. And so I think people intrinsically love sharing knowledge, at least some people do. And then they want to be that you know, restaurant critic, if you will. They want to be that software expert and they want to be recognized for it. They want to share their knowledge. And so those are the people we also work hard to find. And uh, But that has been a challenge at G2. We started you know, with just CRM because as a market, we knew we started with one category. And now kind of like Yelp then went to different cities, we go to different categories. You mentioned Yelp. I also see a lot of comparables to like Glassdoor. Are there other marketplaces that you study and really want to try to dive in to understand how they tick? Um, I mean, I think one other one we looked at a good bit was the Salesforce App Exchange. You know, and I think the Salesforce App Exchange, because we and my first two companies I built, you know, were both in their ecosystem. So it was one we knew well. And frankly, one as a vendor, we encourage reviews to the App Exchange because we knew it was important. 
Um, and I think the app exchange did a lot of great things. But one shortcoming we saw in the app exchange, a lot of the reviews were unattributed. You didn't necessarily know who the person was that wrote them. And frankly, they were just very short. Right. Love the product or yes. you know, something. Yes. You know, which gave you a little bit of color. And I think the app exchange, but it was more of, and I'd say it tells you which apps are most popular and was which categories, which is useful. But so I think we decided with G2, we go a step further. So one, you know, typically we require LinkedIn identity. So I can see you're Orna Hoffman. I can see you're an entrepreneur. I can see you're running SafeGraph. I can see what industry and you're, how many employees you have, which puts your review into context. And, and then we also ask more questions, you know, and in a given category, we might actually ask up to 30 or 40 questions. And we do for each category for CRM software, we'll ask specific questions such as, hey, how good is the sales forecasting? You know, how good is a platform? How good is a report? Yeah, so you have to have some sort of knowledge about the category before you can launch the category because you're asking questions that are category specific. Yes. So we do have a research team and our research team, like I said, they don't rate the apps, but they do define the hierarchy. They define the taxonomy. They define the questions for each category. And so we can give better advice. We can capture more data points to allow a software buyer to go a level below what do you like, what do you dislike, but also what specific features are better or worse in these different apps. And so that you know, can give the business software buyer more nuanced insight. Got it. So if you're Yelp and you're asking for restaurants, regardless of the city, you're probably asking very similar questions. You know, is it family friendly? Is the prices reasonable? Do you get your food quickly? Is this, is this, are the people friendly? Is it too loud? Is, you know, can I bring my dog or you know, whatever it is? Like they're asking those types of questions and some are fact-based, some are more opinion-based or something. And then I guess when Yelp moves to a new category, like uh, haircuts or something, then maybe it does need some new types of questions to 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 ask, but they have a they have a ability to move to other cities. Every time you move to a new category, you need to really map it out and really understand like the best questions to ask, right? Uh, true, and I think we have about ten questions that are common across all categories. But then you know, there's usually let's say twenty to thirty category specific questions, and uh, yes, that takes effort. And the other thing our research team does is we also want to make sure that all the products listed in that category actually offer the features in that category. And because we do find some vendors try to get too ambitious and they're like, oh, I want my software in 200 categories just so I get maximum exposure. But obviously not good for the software buyer, you know, if that vendor's product really is only good at, you know, one or two categories. So we, you know, we still have a good amount. We have a pretty big research team now, actually about 40 people that make sure our taxonomy is correct. We're asking the right questions and also vetting the data. And our whole community helps us because people can report abuse or you know, submit complaints like, hey, this product's in the wrong category. And so we try to also scrub the hierarchy, scrub the data to make sure that software buyers can trust it. I mean, categorization does seem super tricky. Like it's actually even hard when you're inside of a company like where we're at you know, Safegraph or something like that to like categorize yourself. And to even understand like, okay, here's my competitors or something. And then of course, if you're not at the company, like if you're at G2, it seems even harder to categorize everything. Like, how do you think about that category model? Yeah. And I think it's actually, and at the beginning, I thought it was just a pain in the ass and it is a pain in the ass, you know? And like I said, we have over 40 people and then we're actually always debating it with vendors and with software buyers, but especially vendors, they tend to be the most passionate. See their livelihood in some ways depends on it. Um, but I think now it's actually created an amazing data asset. You know, it's over 2,000 categories and it's within a hierarchy. You know, it starts kind of there's a software world overall. And then we have sales tech, martech, HR, cloud, and then it, you know, cascades down. And so we do spend a lot of effort in optimizing it. And the cool thing about our industry, that hierarchy is very dynamic. 
And I think one of the things I'm proudest of is we have helped create whole new categories. You know, one being conversational intelligence, for example, which I think you know didn't even exist four years ago. And obviously now you have amazing vendors like Gong and Chorus, and you know there's probably a hundred. 200 different vendors and apps in that category. Same thing with robotic process automation. In fact, it's not one of our competitive advantages that we have a more dynamic taxonomy. We create new categories much quicker. Because for example, Gartner, I think they still only have 300 magic quadrants. And that's the other challenge in their model because to create a new category, they have to hire a new analyst who has to go start getting smart on the market, doing primary research, and it's a big cost. And they'll only do it if they're certain there's millions in revenue in hiring that new analyst. You know, Whereas at G2, it's all digital. So we can spin it up very quickly, and uh, and then you know we start collecting the content from the crowd, and uh, so I think that 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 hierarchy now, and I think in terms of like DAS data, right? I think it's one of our most valuable data sets, and we even have other companies now licensing our hierarchy. I'll give you an example like ServiceNow; they actually license the G two taxonomy because they have an IT service catalog product, and so they need you know to help their customers categorize all their software apps. And I think it's the kind of thing, and we always, now we sell that hierarchy. We're like, hey, sure, you could do it yourself. You could hire 50 people. And I didn't even realize it when we started, because like I said at the beginning, just pain in the ass. And then actually it was, I think our VP of partnerships, Brittany, she's like, hey, go to it. I think I could sell this to people. I'm like, oh, okay, why don't you give it a shot? And so all of a sudden now it's become a, a cool data asset. And I think the, the good thing about it is it's it's never done, right? Our hierarchy changes literally every day. You need a subscription to it because it's constantly yeah. changing. And frankly, it'd be very hard for anyone else to reproduce because without the vendors coming to us, oftentimes angry, saying it's wrong, we we would never get it right. You know what I mean? Because it requires that debate. And the vendors come to us now because they care because, you know, we have six, seven, eight million software buyers coming every month. So they want it to be right. And so it is a kind of a nice network effect data asset now that would be very hard for someone else to replicate. In the categorization, if someone else is going to use, like ServiceNow is going to use your categorization, somehow they're going to need to map the product to your product, right? Um, It's hard enough to map the company, let's say, Salesforce to Salesforce or something like that. But Salesforce has, uh, you know, maybe a hundred different products, including Slack, right? So how do you map these products? Like you have like some sort of like product mapping feature or you take some sort of string or do you have like a product ID or or something? How, how How does those products get mapped? Yeah, and we do, also our research team works with vendors to map all those products, all the categories. And you're right, it's a very complex hierarchy. Because I think Salesforce yeah, probably has, I don't know, 50 listings on G2. And Is there like an API, like you 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 put in a string and you get back like a yeah. G2 ID or something? And that's, I think, something I still want to make better. And I'd reached out to you, and I think your thought leadership around data, and could we really create kind of an industry key? You know, we do do that. And obviously you can imagine with a partner like ServiceNow, we have to do that. But I think it's something right now, Sarah Ross and our product team are working on making better. Um, and I think it would be you know valuable because there's so many people trying to figure this out. For example, we also you know work with the AWS marketplace to syndicate G2 reviews there. And it's the same challenge, right? How do we map the G2 product to the listing on the AWS marketplace? And so it is a data asset we're creating. Um, and, but I, I do think we haven't yet created kind of the industry standard ID, you know, for anyone to tap into, but it's something we're working towards. Cause even with the ID, it's hard to figure out, okay, is, is it a string input and you still have to like somehow parse the string and have some sort of confidence level 
and you know who knows yeah. how people describe the different products and stuff and especially right. nowadays like everyone calls their product x marketing cloud or, or something like that like these products kind of sound the same sometimes between the two different companies right and also and i think what's unique about our actually right one product can go into many categories and so it is uh it's a pretty complex and dynamic hierarchy um and overall though i would say i I do believe we have the best, biggest hierarchy now of software in the world. And so I think there are a lot of interesting things we can do with that data asset, you know, over time. Now going back to these marketplaces, because a lot of people, a lot of our listeners are interested in marketplaces and figuring these things out. When, when I interviewed Hayden Brown, who's the CEO of Upwork, she ca- talked about how Upwork was demand constraint. And most marketplaces are supply constraint. Like, how do you see your specific Thing on the on on the G two marketplace, and again, I think it's kind of many marketplaces, one category at a time. And I think you know the first thing we always have to build is the review content, the insights. So in some ways, we have to start with the hierarchy of products, the vendors, and then we go out. Our research team recruits and incents the initial reviewers to get the flywheel going, and then really it becomes all about bringing the software buyers to the marketplace. And that's obviously, and then once you get the software buyers coming, yeah, that's when the sellers really want to be there. Um, but if I had, you know, and I think at any marketplace, you can't choose one or the other, right? But but ultimately, our most important constituent is always a software buyer. Software buyer gets good insight, right? So at the margin, if we have to trade off, you know, even if a vendor is like, hey, I'll give you $200,000, you and me in that category that our research team believes are not really in, we're not going to do it. You know, because if the buyer has a bad experience and we lose trust of the buyer, the whole marketplace crumbles very quickly. You're kind of in the itself in like the B2B marketing category. How do you see B2B marketing evolving over time? And I think B2B marketing is changing a ton. And yes, we ourselves, and we do have reviews of G2 marketing solutions, for example, because we are we are also a B2B marketing solution. And I think, you know, there's a big shift. Obviously, it's much bigger than G2. But I think it's totally changing. I think the traditional enterprise model, like when I started 20 years ago, it was all about you just cold call people. Maybe you send them like boxes of stuff like, hey, emotional bar. Yeah, take them to dinner, right? It was all kind of like very outbound brute force enterprise selling. And I think now it has been totally flipped. And certainly one company I admire, you know, HubSpot and you know, just the whole inbound model. I think that's happening everywhere now where the marketer, they search, they learn on their own, right? But I think now the buyer's really in charge. You know, they do their own research, they consume content. And there's all these stats, you know, I think at least 70% of the time, by the time the software buyer is talking to sales, they've already made a decision. And obviously, G2 is another resource that makes that even easier. And I think it's more and more becoming the buyer has all the power. They can get all the information because okay, really- they're starting to research their own. They can go to places like G2 and figure out who the competitors are. So I can, I can narrow down my search to five companies or whatever. Um, and they, they may need certain information or they need a certain type of demo or kind of like there might be still things they need to talk to the salesperson about. But by the time they're they're, they're much probably much more knowledgeable today about the market than they were 10 years ago. Is that, is that the way you think about it? Uh, certainly. I think it goes a step further because most of these products now you can just try. Yeah, so I think what we see more software buyers doing, they go to G2, they look at the category, they see the options, right? They go to, maybe they go to the top one or two choices. And in fact, rather than calling sales, I think more people are inclined to try it now. You know, I think, and you look at all the disruptive apps now, they almost all have a freemium model. They have a free trial. And so people, I think, frankly, just try it. 
you know, and then probably they'll only call sales like once they've tried it, they like it. And they're just looking for, hey, now I want to buy it, but I want a better deal, right? Or or maybe I'm using it now for 10 people and I want to roll that to a thousand. Do I get a deal on that? So I think it is totally changing, which I think also marketing you know, has to totally change. And all the traditional kind of very outbound enterprise marketing really doesn't work anymore. And the customers don't, also don't trust it because you know, we've also created a huge trust problem in our industry because you know, we all tend to over-market stuff. You know, traditionally, as an industry, we're probably one of the best industries in marketing, but we tend to announce things and they don't really work yet. And, you know, they take a few years to work. So the buyers are very skeptical of our business. How do you see like pricing? Because, like, a lot of the newer companies, pricing is more transparent. It's kind of easier to understand. But, but the, the traditional enterprise companies, as you mentioned, it's, it's very opaque. Um, maybe different companies who are buying the exact same thing are getting very, very different prices and stuff like that. How do you see that evolving over time? Yeah. And I do think transparency will also come to enterprise software. And I think you're right, the traditional enterprise software vendors, and you know, some of which have acquired my prior companies, they tend to negotiate every deal, right? And every customer ends up with different pricing. And uh, and I think that is going to go away with you know transparency. And I think the disruptive vendors are already doing it. You know, I think like the Slacks of the world, and I think Slack even went a step further where they said, hey, we won't even charge you if your users don't log in, you know, very radical. And uh, so I think that's the trend of all the modern vendors. And I also, we do believe part of our mission ultimately is to bring more transparency. And we do also have a product called G2 Track. And frankly, I think that's also how you became a G2 investor. You'd invest in a company called Siftery, which was building Track. But also Track allows companies to track all their SaaS spend. And part of the reason I find that so fascinating, it also allows you to see what are these different vendors or companies paying for different vendors' products. And you can actually see real pricing, real contract terms. And so part of our long-term vision is an anonymized, aggregated way to also bring that to software buyers. We already do it on G2, but it's more right now, it's more qualitative. Like, hey, how do you perceive this product in price relative to the competition, which already gives a buyer some insight. But I think over time, I think it will become like TrueCar, you know, and figure whether G2 does it or somebody else, but I think transparency is going to happen. And it used to be like, you know, the car dealer is a classic example where it was all about how good well, you could negotiate. Now you go to True Car and you know exactly what you're going to pay. And I think enterprise software is going to end up there. I think, and I think G2, we see ourselves as part of bringing that transparency. One of the things that G2 is just a phenomenal job of is SEO. Was that something that you specifically thought was an early priority? And, and how do you see like that moat going forward? Yes. And really, I also give my co-founder, Tim Hainer, a lot of credit, but he was our head of product at the beginning. And then while I built another company, Steelbrick, he was a CEO and he realized that SEO is the key, you know, to getting the buyers there, you know, once they review content. Because then that was also our, our bet was with consumerization of software. I mean, so we shop at consumers. Is the key terms like product name review or is it product, product A versus product B or product space competitors? Or what are the key terms like that you really want to win? Yeah. And I think one of the biggest ones, for example, is like CRM software. And I'm like just typing it into Google to make sure I don't, uh, I don't myself. But and I think right now, actually, we're number two. Salesforce is number one. But number that's two, pretty good. Obviously, Salesforce is known as a great CRM software. Right. And sometimes we're number one. And that's the thing with SEO. It changes every time you search. But, you know, but 
the number two result now is best CRM software, 2021, compare reviews on 630. Ah, got it. So, so you want to win a specific category. And that's very, very hard that wouldn't like, again, the product name space competitors or something like that. We also target those. We think the most important is actually the category name because it's the buyer is most likely to search for. You know, like they'd search for marketing automation, account-based marketing software. That's the biggest top of funnel term for a software buyer. And so we target that very heavily. And frankly, one advantage we have like on the CRM software search, obviously, if you're just looking for Salesforce, you'll go there, but then you'd probably just go to salesforce.com and more people actually will click on the best CRM software, compare reviews on 630 CRMs. Because if you're still in the funnel and you're still trying to figure out which CRM is best for you, you're actually more likely to go to the site. You've probably already heard of Salesforce anyway. So if you're searching for CRM software, you're probably maybe want to broaden your search beyond just Salesforce at that point. And we do also target comparisons like Salesforce versus Microsoft Dynamics. And, uh, you know, so those are also important terms. And, uh, And I think for each category, we've kind of defined, hey, here's the 10 most important terms to win on. And then we do monitor, we metric it, and we put huge effort into it, probably like a lot of companies, but I think any kind of a digital marketplace you're going to be, I mean, Google is still, you know, for us, the majority of our traffic. Like I said, it's our long-term dream, and we're getting more and more direct traffic. It was also a bit scary being dependent on Google. And obviously, that happened to Yelp, right? where I like to say Google went evil on them. Um, you know, but at some point, they decided they're going to get a local search. I don't think I haven't seen them wanting to get in our category yet, and I think it's a little bit more niche and boutique-y, you know, enterprise software. Uh, but that's where really long-term goal, we want to build our community and also give software buyers reasons to come back to G2. And, you know, if we figure out how it's a market or they're interested in MarTech, if we can give them a great digest and all the tech trends, then, you know, maybe they'll sign up and just keep coming back to G2.com. So that's the long-term dream, but, you know, but short-term Google is still very important to us. There's these expert networks like GLG, where you often want to like talk to people that are users of a particular product, understand why they use that product. Often it's because you're an investor, but it, there could be other reasons to uh, to talk to these product users. Could that be a future, or maybe it's already a current um, offering for G2, where you're kind of in some ways competing with a GLG? Because you, you know who all these users are. Um, a lot of them would be happy to talk to somebody for two or $300 um, live. Like, could that be a way of like putting these things together? I think so. Yes. I mean, I think a lot of people do that for free today because as I mentioned, most G2 reviews are tied to LinkedIn profile. And so a lot of people will just do that. You know, they'll reach out. I actually have heard a lot of investors. We actually also have a growing investor data business now. You know, where we, but a lot of the investors will do that where they'll just CEO who wrote the review on G2 and reach out to them on LinkedIn to talk for further conversation. We do also, Thomas Learman, the, you know, Al and GLG, he's one of our angel investors. And so it's certainly a model I've studied and he's no longer you know, involved day to day there. But I think there's also a lot to expert networks. When you, once you start paying for it, there's all these compliance challenges. I think that GLG, you know, insider trading and. Yeah, that's right. GLG, like, uh, GLG, GLG, they often have to have like someone on the phone with you to help you through all the compliance stuff or things like right. that. And that's why, you know, I think certainly we haven't been keen to get in it quickly because there's also the complexity and the other route could be, and there's a bunch of those networks, certainly GLG, but we could also partner with them, you know, uh, but there's a lot of complexity if you want to start paying the experts around compliance that, you know, we haven't wanted to deal with yet. Yeah. Okay. Reasonable. Um, now, I, a couple of questions for you about like being like a multi-time founder, like you and your co-founder, you, you guys kind of self-funded G2 from the beginning. Um, and that's not 
atypical amongst multi-time founders, right? You have this kind of like interesting um, way to, to do that. What do you think like the advantages of the, of the second, third time founder over the first time founder? Yeah, and that's probably the biggest advantage that we were able to fund it ourselves. And I didn't really answer your question earlier, but the VCs at the beginning wouldn't fund it because yeah, it's just too big of a leap, unknown business model. You know, sometimes with multi-time founders, you just get a blank check no matter whatever you're working on. It's like you get the, you get the thing. Maybe, maybe, well, maybe that's a 2021 thing and not a 2012 thing. Yeah, and actually I got that. Then I went to build this other company, Steelbrick, you know, which was like a big machine, CPQ 2.0. And they're literally like first meeting, like here's a check. Yeah, but it was right, like- they understood good. the company. We built it before it was a 2.0, but I think this model was different enough. And a lot of the investors were skeptical. They were like, uh, is it really going to work in the enterprise? Our business people want to write reviews. No, Gartner's the status quo. It reminded me a little bit of like when Mark Benioff was going around pitching Salesforce in 2000, 2001. All the investors were like, no, Siebel, no, like cloud isn't really going to work. It's only for small businesses, right? So I do think the VCs tend to be a bit lagging. And uh, so they didn't see it, or maybe I wasn't good enough at pitching it. It's weird that the VCs tend to be extremely risk averse, I found. True. You would think that there would be these like risk takers, smart, you know, but they're almost like by personality type. If you want to become a VC, you're almost like de-risking your career, right? Especially like if you're an entrepreneur who becomes a VC, you're moving in a less risk capacity, right? Yes. No, because they have the portfolio, right? And as an entrepreneur, obviously we do the opposite, right? We double down. And you know, put more assets into fewer things. And uh, but with G two, you know, we did then do that because we had conviction that it was worth bringing to life, and we were able to bring in some like angel friends, like one of them being Mike Gamson. He was the global you know head of basically go to market for LinkedIn for many years. So we we were able to bring in angels and people that kind of trusted us for betting on us. And I also think the role of VCs frankly is more to scale a working model. I think we all know that now, right? It's kind of like beyond a million or two in ARR. It's kind of like the spreadsheet's working. Once the spreadsheet's working, the VCs come in, right? But I think very few VCs will come in before the spreadsheet's working, especially in an unknown business, new business model. Um, and so we were able to do that ourselves. And for, yeah, the other big advantage, if, you, if you're willing to write the early checks, you end up owning more of the company, which I think is good, both for returns and your ability to shape the culture, you know, but obviously you, we also took more of the risk. And, and it was a bit scary at the beginning, because honestly, the biggest thing that was scary, like I, I was not sure how we were going to make money. And uh, we it took us, you know, really at least a couple of years to figure out how we could make any money. How does your outlook about how you run companies change from like the earlier companies that you ran to G2? Yeah. And I feel like I'm still learning a lot, especially on this conscious leadership. And my first company, if anyone I started, I was like 27, 28, is like all adrenaline. Like, Which could take you pretty far. True. And you kind of work your way through walls. But frankly, I also do a lot of dumb stuff and make a lot of mistakes. And, you know, I did all that. And we almost went bankrupt three years in. It was like a dot-com era company. By 2003, we'd like burned through over $20 million. We had a million left, almost no revenue. And we actually had to go to bootstrap mode, which was super painful with like 20 million of overhang. Um, so we you know, learned a lot of hard lessons, but I think now, I think the second company, one of the biggest things that was different, I had about a year off after I left my first company, big machines, which turned into successful exit. And frankly, I, I didn't work cause I was kind of burned out and I was home with my wife and kids. And, but then after, like I was depressed a few months in my wife's kind of like, Hey, what's wrong with you? That's when I kind of realized, well, actually I miss it. And so the biggest thing that's been different now building company two, company three is like, I, I'm like, I know it's a conscious choice. And, and I think that kind of makes it, and I remind myself when like you have that shitty day, right. Or like a flight gets canceled over here, it's four in the morning. 
and remind myself, hey, you chose to do this. And I think that's, you know, kind of whereas the first company felt more like survival. And after that initial adrenaline rush and I'm starting something, it was like, oh man, like I'm screwed and I'm going to fail. And, and it just became a grind. And uh, so I think that perspective is very different as a second, third time entrepreneur. And I think now being much more conscious about how I lead and especially working with a coach, a conscious leadership coach, that's, that's huge for me. So I can, I can keep getting better. What do you think the big differences from like a conscious leadership perspective about how you lead today? You mentioned it's all adrenaline before versus how like maybe someone who isn't as steeped in conscious leadership may lead. Yeah. And I think uh, they talk, you know, conscious leadership, they have this concept of above the line and below the line. And below the line is probably more the adrenaline fueled. Like I'm just kind of leading through anger and emotion and I know what's right. And yeah, maybe as a smart entrepreneur, most of the time you do know what's right, but you kind of just, I'd like bludgeon people more, bully people more with the right answer. Whereas I think the above the line conscious leadership approach is more uh, getting into a more creative state, a more present state. And then really co-creating with your team. And the other thing I've realized that sort of adrenaline fueled, like you do it all as an entrepreneur, it only scales so far, you know, like it works great with like 10 people, maybe 50, but then eventually it also breaks because you can't lead hundreds of people that way. And so I think that's my other big learning. Now we have about 500 people at G2, but I've also put a lot of effort in the last year and a half. I built a much stronger senior leadership team, more mature leaders. And then I'm also working on freedom and responsibility. You know, this is which comes from the Netflix concept, but also giving my leaders much more freedom, which I think if you hire great leaders, that's what they want. They don't want some angry founder micromanaging them. Uh, they'll quit, you know, A, and B, they won't be able to be great leaders. If all the core decisions the founder has to make, then you have a bottleneck on decisions. So you're making your you're make, your company has to will make fewer decisions, which at 10 people, like there's only so many decisions to make. So maybe the founder can make all the necessary decisions. But as you get to 500 people, like you could just have this queue of hundreds of decisions that are never getting made if they all have to get to your desk, right? Yeah. And or you're just miserable because you're working 20 hours a day trying to keep up with everything. So at a minimum, you make yourself miserable and you create a backlog and you demotivate your leaders. So it just doesn't work. And you know, I've grown to realize that. And then on the flip side, if you can really have you know, true leaders that do have the freedom to create, but then the responsibility is also you hold them accountable. And I like using Mark Benioff's V2 mom, you know, the vision, values, measures, but also being very explicit. Hey, I'm gonna give you the freedom, but in return, let's agree on what metrics, what results they're gonna deliver in return. And so I think being clear on both. And, uh, and I think that's kind of what I'm enjoying is working to become a more mature leader. And, and I think, you know, so far it's working and I'm also enjoying the, the personal growth and learning. Cause it's just, it's a different way for me to show up in the world. And frankly, also more enjoyable one where I feel less anxious myself. Cause I don't feel like it's all on me and I don't have to carry, you know, all the weight, all the stress, the anxiety, the company inside me, but I can really have a team and we can do it together. And that feels much better. And I also believe, you know, it can be much more effective. In some ways, the only way to re- truly distribute decision-making to lots of different people in your org, including like the, a very junior person who may be making a lot of different decisions that are going on, is if everyone in the company, or at least everyone who's making core decisions, understands like the long-term plan of the company, where the company is going, what the core reasons is, et cetera. Uh, because the, ultimately, nobody wants to make a decision 
that like if you had the same information that they had, you would make a completely different decision on, right? They want to, they want to, they they want to, they want to be able to make something that they think you would do. So how do you how do you help everyone in the company understand that kind of long term vision? strategy, et cetera. Are you like spending a lot of time just like communicating that? Uh, yes. So spending much more time on communicating the vision. And I mentioned I'm a fan of Mark Benioff's V2 Mom, and that all starts with the vision and clearly articulating what is the vision for the do company. Do you use the V2 Mom framework yourself or do you have like your own kind of similar framework? Yes. I, I use the V2 Mom verbatim. It's working, so might as well just keep yeah. using it. Yeah. And then, but I think spending a lot to articulate that V, what is the vision? And we just had our kickoff at G2 where we talked about our next peak which is where do we want the company to be in three years? And we talked all about that vision. It is a place you go for software, for software buyers, for sellers, what data we're gonna provide. So everyone understands the vision of where we wanna be. Um, I think that is, you're right, very important to help people make the right decision. And then the other thing we do now at our senior leadership offsite, I, I talk about, we don't try to make any tactical decisions. It's all just about philosophical alignment and try to get with our senior like on talent strategy and how do we build, you know, we wanna build talent density and, but what does that really mean? And then we debate it. We have outside speakers to stimulate us. You know, we had uh, Peter Ryling speak to us. He's a VP of leadership development for Netflix at our last offsite. This offsite, I'm having Jeffrey Smart speak to us. You know, he wrote the book, Who, all about, you know, who, the idea being what's the right talent. So I think debating topics like that, learning together, and then we get to that philosophical alignment. We have an aligned vision. And then the leaders can make, you know, aligned decisions and they can make better tactical decisions than I would, but it still all aligns to the vision and to the strategy. Okay. Last question we ask all of our guests is what, what conventional advice, it could be business advice, but it also could be like personal advice. Do you think is generally bad advice? Well, one that I've recently been playing with is comfort. And I think the idea of seeking discomfort for growth. You think that's not good advice? It's not like a lot of people, uh, maybe more status quo. My story, especially in American society, right? We're all about being comfortable. And I think, you know, one good way to challenge yourself, or I like to do is physically, you know, and, and one simple example now that I've been doing is, you know, rather than taking a warm shower, you take an ice cold shower. And obviously that's not pleasurable, at least initially, right? But then you learn to breathe through it. And then you walk out of the shower with much more energy. But you're just like, I'm ready to go. Like, kind of like okay. But it's, you know, it's embracing discomfort every day. And, you know, I also... Like I like to, to work out, but it's not just, hey, don't just go for an easy run, but do some intervals, do some quote unquote suffering. And I do believe that that, you know, that really opens me up. Is it like the shower or the intervals, like it's a short burst of suffering or or is it just like a chronic suffering that's important, no, like, we, like it, a Buddhist thing or something? Yeah. And I think the chronic to me would be dumb, but, and ideally it's, I think if you can breathe through it, right through that cold shower, first it might feel like suffering, but you feel you breathe through it, you accept it. And now all of a sudden it's no longer suffering, right? There's no pain by accepting. And how do you psych yourself up to do that? Cause I, I've been, you know, I want to do the cold shower, at least at the end of my shower and just like rip it to cold. And for a few days I was doing, it, it was great. But then every time I was like, well, I'll just skip this shower. You know, I don't need to do it on every single one. Like, how do you, how do you gear up to do it every single time? Well, I think it's kind of like three breaths and then, okay, let's go. You know, And then reminding yourself that, Hey, I always feel better afterwards. Okay. Oh, right, that makes sense. Well, this has been awesome. Obviously people can find G2 by going to G2.com. Where do people find you on the interwebs? Yeah, I think LinkedIn. 
probably my, my favorite social network. So Godard Able and my profile is open for a connection. Hopefully I'll get some notes from some of you. Thank you so much for joining us at World with Us. Yeah, thanks, Lauren, for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of DAS is brought to you by SafeGraph.